It's the 27th of January, 2019, and this is episode 386 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, my name is Adam B. Levine, and I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And special guest, Daniel Buckner, who works on decentralized identity at Microsoft. Glad to be here. Thanks to our hosts, guests, and to you listeners for joining today's show. So, Daniel, this is the first time that we've talked to you on the show, but you actually popped up on my radar back in 2014 and 2015 through the WC3 Payment Standardization Group that Manu Sparney was working on back then. Before we get into today's discussion, can you walk us through your introduction to and sort of experience with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Yeah, absolutely. So it goes back a little ways. Uh, I first bought Bitcoin when it was at about $4 uh, when I worked at Mozilla, previous to Microsoft, I worked at Mozilla for about half a decade. My buddy next to me, he was just sort of the guy that you know was early into it. And we were both libertarians and stuff. So he was like, hey, you should check it out. And I only bought a tiny amount because I was like, I'm going to use it for the technology. So, <laughs> so I bought, he, he sold me $20. I bought him lunch that day. And he's like, oh, I'll send you like, you know, four and a half something Bitcoin. And so I was playing with it and, you know, I'd use it to gamble and stuff. I don't know if there's like law enforcement listening, but um, <laughs> all, stuff like that. And I eventually did buy a little bit more, but nothing, you know, no Lambos or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. but it's interesting because I got first involved in the tech side with like the colored coins. I thought, oh, well, you know, you could mark certain bits of information and that might be useful and quickly thought maybe that could be an identifier system to create, you know, pseudonymous identifiers. And that's actually where it started. It was at Mozilla in very early 2012. Um, it was called Firefox Handshake. It was an internal thing. A few of us really wanted to do it. But at the time, Mozilla was very focused on Firefox OS, which turned out to be sort of a big blunder and a money suck. And, and our project was like, well, we can't handle two, two big things at once. So in 2015, um, my buddy Christian Howman, who was at Mozilla but had gone to Microsoft to work on Edge, said, hey, you know, you should come over here and do some of the same stuff, which I ran the developer, you know, ecosystem PM stuff at Mozilla. And so I, in my mind, I actually wanted to go to Microsoft for a different reason, uh, which was to work on this stuff. And my, my thought there was, you know, identity is a big enough thing that you really have to be one of the bigs to be able to make a run at it. So I went in under the auspices of working on Edge and about a year and a half period sold it through to the identity organization that this was an important thing that they should, should focus on. Oh, I believe we invented that in Greece called a Trojan horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now you're working at Microsoft and in technical products for decentralized identity. How, how would you characterize decentralized identity as a goal or an activity within Microsoft? You know, decentralized identity is, you know, it's funny to think of like, well, why would Microsoft want to do this? Decentralized identity is actually really important in the sense that it creates provenance for relationships, which doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a single identity or identifier, but it actually, it's really important in business. You'll see a lot of the blockchain stuff out there, which I personally am skeptical of, that says, you know, all these things are going to happen on these blockchains. Really, in most of the scenarios, what people really want is granular claims, proofs, and trust. And that's more of an identity problem than it is, you know, putting things into a blockchain transaction. So we've looked at Tons of scenarios where really it's it's ha- it's the individual owning the identifiers, uh, plural, and data and being able to encrypt that data and sign things that's most important. So that's that's what they were interested in. From a reasoning perspective, why would Microsoft do this versus someone else? 
we don't make the bulk of our money off of owning people, right? There's a couple of other companies who, who do that. And so for us to say, well, we're going to give you an identifier or means of getting identifiers that you own and you know, encrypting your data, that doesn't hurt our core business model. Um, and it provides us a lot of other benefits on the business side that, that we're interested in. So compared to some of the other companies where you uh, might be using their login mechanism to access various websites so that they own not just the identifier, but also all of the identity management around that, probably the, the most widespread mechanism for identity federation is OAuth. People don't know what that means, but generally... When you say log into this website using Facebook or your Google account or whatever, and the website bounces you to Google or Facebook, you log in there and it passes a credential back and says, hey, yes, this person did log in and here's their email, here's their whatever identifiers. That's a federated identity, but it's fairly centralized. You're not, you're talking about something completely different than that. Absolutely. Yeah. Federation, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the best they could come up with with what they had at the time. And one of the reasons we couldn't come up with something better for a long, long time is DPKI really requires a system sort of like a blockchain to work. I mean, we've had other things All that right. people hold, have attempted. Hold, hold on one second <laughs> okay. there. Sorry. <laughs> Let's take that DPKI acronym and parse it out. That's decentralized public key infrastructure? Yes, correct. All right, great. So, you know, one of the things I've talked about in the past, and I think this is something where we seem to be in agreement, is that one of the unique things that Bitcoin did was the largest deployment in civilian hands of public key cryptography systems. PGP never achieved that. SSL didn't because it's all server side. Other than the Department of Defense, which has the largest PKI, Bitcoin and all of the crypto systems that came out are the largest deployment of PKI in civilian hands. Would, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. So that's DPKI. And for the first time ever, people care about keys. And the only reason they care about keys is because if they don't, they lose money. So <laughs> that's a, a fantastic alignment of incentives, which really creates the entire security model because once you care about money and you care about keys, now you can use these keys to do other interesting things. Like, for example, identifiers and signing and ownership and attestations and things like that. So tell us more about how that plays out. Yeah, so, so kind of how it works and how we envision this. I was on a different podcast many years ago where someone said, oh, you don't need that. You know, Just trust the quote-unquote Facebook blockchain and the Twitter blockchain and those identifiers. And my point to them, which actually ended up being wildly true in a bad way was, you know, whether it's DNS domains or identifiers on a social network, those things can be taken from you at a whim. And they are being today and people are being deplatformed. And, you know, it's, it's all fun and games when it's a hipster, like losing their Instagram filtered avocado toast photos or something. But when you start tying proofs to those things, to centralized identifiers or federated identifiers like email, it's really it's dangerous. It's dangerous because you could be essentially wiped from the digital landscape with the snap of a finger. And, and that's something that we want to advance. And so the way we're doing it is we focus on this technology that's being incubated in W3C called decentralized identifiers. And really what that is, is any means, and the, the means vary based on the group or the, you know, the construction, a means of embedding in a target system like a Bitcoin or Ethereum or some blockchain, other type of ledger, 
an entry that stands for an identifier that is not provided to you. There's no Google or Facebook or Microsoft that's handing you an identifier saying, hey, use this and I technically own it. It's you creating a key and endpoint backed identifier that you own as long as you own the keys, just like Bitcoin itself. So that would be like, I, for example, have made attestations about my Bitcoin address that I've used to bootstrap my Keybase account. Mm -hmm. I also own some Ethereum names in the Ethereum names service, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a smart contract that tracks names, which I've signed with Ethereum keys and spent Ethereum in order to secure those. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, so that's like, I would, I'm not going to say simplistic in a negative way. I'm not trying to be pejorative here, but I guess that's a simplistic means of creating an identifier. Archetypal, so, yeah, prototypical. Yeah. It's it's kind of the early stages, rough prototype. Exactly. And so there's lots of groups working on DID implementations that kind of take that and make it work at scale. And that's, that's what actually we're working on. We're contributing a piece of technology to make DIDs work at scale initially on the Bitcoin blockchain that allow for potentially one Bitcoin transaction to anchor the PKI ops of, you know, tens of thousands of different DIDs. And one point to make here is that an individual doesn't just have one DID because that would be scary because eventually you'll be correlated. Eventually people will come to know that when that DID pops up, it's Dan. So what we believe in is is they're called peer-to-peer DIDs or pairwise DIDs for many cases where you may want to create a DID just for one relationship that you don't share, you don't correlate anywhere else. And that keeps the scope of the identity interactions between you and that other party in a way that doesn't invade your privacy or, or expose you to the risk of fingerprinting. Daniel, you're talking about building on top of the Bitcoin blockchain and embedding a kind of number of these points in it. Right now, you know, with uh, Bitcoin addresses, of course, you can have as many as you want. Does this mm-hmm. use Bitcoin addresses directly or is this another layer you're building on top that's just embedding into the Bitcoin blockchain? It's another layer on top, and we do that for scalability reasons. So it, it's a layer two. It's not like technically constructed like Lightning, but it's you know it's similar to that where you know you can have a lot of different ops occur, and then you can root them in one transaction, for instance. So the way the protocol works is that essentially reads from zero. You know, like you boot up one of these nodes, and it's truly decentralized. Microsoft doesn't own any piece, and it reads through the transactions, and whenever it hits one that's embedded with one of these payloads, uh, these batches of ops. It pulls it from the shared IPFS ring that the other nodes have already pinned the data for. There it is. That was what I was looking for. So you're using IPFS as the distributed file storage layer, and then you're having multiple parties pinned. So on the background, that kind of acts more like a federated type solution, but there isn't really a better option for that sort of data storage right now based on current technology, right? Yeah, so it isn't even like a, a large company federation scheme. So the one cool part about this protocol is unlike a blockchain, it is differential. So I could persist, for instance, only the backing metadata, like PKI metadata for the DIDs Mm. I own or my family or something else, I don't have to maintain total state on that second layer to participate in replicating the underlying metadata. Mm. So the thesis here is that a user will just selectively choose to run IPFS and pin their own stuff, which then does create this this distributed network in a way that's much more distributed than if it were federated and just, you know, large companies running nodes, things like that. Yeah, I mean, so who is going to go to that length to run that on their machine? You know, not all users are going to do that. It'll probably well, be... Well, but it's possible. Some, yeah. it is, oh, no, it's technically, absolutely, and we encourage it. Um, right. But, you know, the thing here is it's it's definitely going to be run by like companies like Microsoft and others. 
but we do encourage people to run their own nodes. And I think it'll be a heterogeneous mixture of, you know, from individuals all the way up to large companies that are helping. And like you saw Cloudflare, right? They're mirroring IPFS mm-hmm. and stuff. So one of the fundamental issues in this entire discussion around identity is that when you talk about identity as it relates to blockchains, the initial impulse that most people have is to centralize this and centralize this hard, either under a single company. And we see that with a number of startups in the blockchain space, which want to be the owners of identity, or they want to associate with some kind of government program. So if you talk about the various blockchain or DLT projects that people claim to demonstrate the success of private controlled centralized ledgers, they almost always talk about some kind of government related, identity related project, whether that's uh, real estate in Dubai or identity in some other jurisdiction, et cetera, et cetera. To me, all of these things are terrifying. They represent the exact same risks as being deplatformed by corporations. They represent the culmination of, of the surveillance states and surveillance capitalism coming together in one glorious surveillance fascist nightmare. So I've been very vocal against any attempts to create immutable, unique, individualized, centralized identities for human beings as if human beings are unchangeable, predetermined, and forever tracked, because that seems like a mechanistic framework that, that, that crushes individuality. How do we escape from that path? How do we get away from this trajectory towards these really fascist ideals? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I 100% agree with that. Uh, you know, I, I'm a libertarian. I think you followed me now a little bit on Twitter, and even in this brief few days, you probably got a, a glimpse of that. Oh, so no, I, I've been I, following I, you for years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're... we're. <laughs> so I don't hold back about my personal views. And I, I, I completely agree. I think there's a few technical and both policy things that we have to be mindful of as we pursue these systems. One on the technical side, and, and you'll see other groups do this, and it's very bad, is, well, you know, we have a blockchain for identity, and it's not even just for identifiers, not just for PKI, but it's also for the data. And that is truly scary. Like I would never want, and, and it's a terrible practice to put data on a blockchain that could in any way personally identify anyone. And so we stay away from that 100%. Our belief is that the chain is literally and only used for PKI. And that's it. Key rotations to these identifiers of which you may own lots. The other piece, the big piece that you know you, you need an identity is somewhere this data has to reside. There has to be like the proofs that you sign and other things. We think that happens off-chain entirely in these things called identity hubs, which are essentially encrypted personal data stores that you control, that are you know cached to your devices, that you could wipe from any server at any time. And no one has the keys, but the keys that you possess for your IDs. And so that gives you a level of control over the situation um, that we just don't have right now, because right now you're storing your, your data with Facebook and Google and all these other folks, and they can read that. And I think that that's a situation we should move on from. Now, almost any discussion you have about this topic, people instinctively go to this appeal to authority whereby the only way for identity to be legitimate, I hate that word, legitimate and recognized and uh, valuable and verifiable is if you have some kind of central authority do the attestation. 
It's like, yes, but who's going to tell me that this is really the person who's going to issue the passport, the driving license, the real estate title, the whatever, for all of that government. And we, that takes the discussion straight down a road that leads to ADHAR. If you're not familiar with it, by the way, either ADHAR or Sesame, look those two things up and prepare to have your mind thrown into the dark fascist future that we are all <laughs> approaching. ADHAR is the completely centralized, totally corrupt, civil rights-destroying identity system that the Indian government introduced, which ties biometrics, bank accounts, cell phones, and access to everything, to a single numeric identifier that never changes, that can be easily compromised in one big central database controlled by the government. It's the ultimate fascist uh, nightmare, or it would be until the Chinese invented Sesame, which is the exact same thing, plus a scoring system to show how loyal you are, <laughs> and then decide whether you should get access to any of your civil privileges, not rights anymore. So, you know, these two are the end game, Adhar and Sesame. And they start with the central idea that in order to have ID, to have identity, you have to have an authority that certifies it, that shows that it is in fact you, the attestation problem. Yeah, so I'm very familiar with, with both systems. You know, the Greater Identity Org for Microsoft, a little background on it. We service 95% of institutions, organizations, governments, and enterprises on the planet. That's the scope of Azure Active Directory and AD. And so I haven't worked on those more centralized technologies. I came to do this, but um, we're very, very familiar with these systems. And other folks we work with in the DID community, you know, we, we definitely don't have a, a bright and cheery view of those systems you mentioned. We think that they're doing things in, in the worst way possible. I mean, I could be a little bit more explicit than that. I, I'll tell you this, that a 14-year-old me never imagined a world where Microsoft would be fighting for the rights of the user's identity online in a decentralized <laughs> and open source way. And Google would be partnering with the Chinese government to track every single human cell phone number correlated to every single search they make in perpetuity. Yeah, we're in a fun timeline. <laughs> it's it's like bell bottoms. Everything comes back around. <laughs> Excuse me. I'd like to pause this timeline in the multiverse and try some of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andres, to address the topic you brought up about decisions, I don't believe that you have to prove identity with the authorities that we always think of today as being the central authorities, mostly governments. Some things we'll probably use in the bootstrapping phase, like you might get an identifier that you just use with the DMV. And this is not one identifier, I'll just reiterate, but you might generate one just for your DMV relationship. And only if you need to prove that you have the ability to drive, you would present that potentially to an officer. But there's actually lots of different organizations in the world that can attest to certain things. I, I worked a little bit with the um, credit union industry. They are actually, through some of their fiduciary duty and stuff and the, the abilities that they have, they can actually attest uh, second party proofs to say, I legally under penalty of perjury checked this doc and this is what it said. And if whoever the relying party is, you know, this could be like some other business in the world says, oh, you know what, I trust, I trust credit union XYZ that, that they're saying this person's real. That's another way that you can achieve proof of, hey, I'm actually a real human. I'm not just a bot in a relationship that may be important. That makes sense. I think one of the fundamental misunderstandings is that 
people who are new to this conversation tend to confuse the concept of attestation, identity, risk management, and trust. That all of that becomes mired into one big blob. We use identity as a proxy for risk. And it's not a very good proxy. It's a poor proxy. Like if we know what this person did in the past, we can make certain assumptions about what they'll do in the future. Therefore, knowing who this person is tells us what this person might do in the future, which is a very, very loose kind of correlation, right? Because Mm -hmm. first of all, if you look at people who do very, very bad things, until the moment when they did that very first very bad thing, they had a perfect history of doing very good things. <laughs> so that didn't have very good predictive power. If you sign up for any brokerage account, the first thing they're going to do is read out a quick disclaimer where they say, past performance is no indication of future performance or actions. <laughs> and yet we have some difficulty understanding that, that applies to humans. Not only can Good people do bad things in the future unexpectedly and suddenly. But the opposite is also true if you accept the possibility of human change, of remediation, reform, redemption. Then you have to accept that bad people can do good things in the future. And that means if you tie people to actions they did in the past, not only is a bad predictor of risk, but it also crushes the possibility of redemption for humans. So one is that. The other one is the idea of attestation without identity that a lot of people have difficulty grasping, meaning that I get stopped by a police officer who wants to check if I have a valid current driver's license and insurance. What the hell difference does it make if my name is Andreas Antonopoulos or something else? They have no reason to know, none whatsoever, when I was born, where I live, what my name is, what my ethnic background is from that name, or anything else. None of that is relevant. All they need to know is, have I been certified by some organization as to my competence in operating a motor vehicle? And have I paid for the sufficient insurance in order to protect against third-party risk? That's it. The rest is irrelevant. In fact, the rest is all prejudicial profiling information that is used routinely to prejudicially profile people. It's completely irrelevant. So why can't I show an ID that simply has a number on it? What's your name? I'm sorry, but I refuse to answer questions without my lawyer present. Absolutely. And that's that's something that we want to make possible is disclosure of just the, the values necessary. So in this way, you might get a proof. Um, that actually, you bring up the canonical one that everyone uses in their examples, which is if I walk up to a bouncer at a bar and I hand him an ID, there's no reason that that person needs to see all of that stuff. They need to understand that I'm 21 and that's it. And I, you know, I would even argue with that, that law particularly, but, um, <laughs> but in most cases, that's the fact. They don't need to see where you live. That could be very scary. Like, let's say you're a woman that might live alone who says, you know, I, I don't want you know, or strange, per strange chance guys. you happen to be working in the cryptocurrency industry and you don't want some <laughs> random person to know that you have large amounts of tokenized assets at your domicile. Yeah. Yep. So there's lots of people who are in this circumstance. And the only thing you need to prove is that one bit. And we want to make it possible with these proofs to do that so that they're not actually tracking an identifier. In some cases, not even use an identifier, but have this signed authority that might have an identifier so that they know, yes, it was this organization, this company, whatever, that says, here's a proof of something I'll accept. 
This idea that you can do attestation, prove a fact, which is what attestation means, prove a fact Mm -hmm. about you without proving who you are, which is completely irrelevant, has gotten to the extreme absurd where people will look at identity as a proxy for attestation, even when the attestation is missing. Meaning that I'll go into a high security building. They'll be like, ID, please. I need to check your ID. Uh, What for? Oh, we require ID from everyone in order to enter this secure facility. Why? What for? I'm not attesting to anything. The ID doesn't actually, you're not running it against the criminal background check. You're not running it against the wanted persons list. You're not running it against the no fly, no walk into building list. You're not running it against anything. What are you going to do? You're going to take my ID, look at the name and go, your name is Osama Laden. I got you. I got you. (laughs) (laughs) What, have you memorized the names of all interesting persons? (laughs) It's right. So you've got this complete security theater where they take your idea and they look at it. And all you've attested for is that you had the bone breaking patience to sit in a DMV for two hours and interact with those people to get your photo taken and get a little laminated card. (laughs) That's all you've attested to. And does that grant you access to a federally secured building that you could prove to have an address? That's all you've shown, nothing else. They don't even make a copy of it in many places. So you've gone from attestation requires identity to identity is required to identity is required for no attestation reasons to let's just do security theater around checking your identity for no discernible reason whatsoever. One of my favorite sort of the more you break this down, the sillier it gets is if you ever tried to get the points necessary. I was getting my uh, driver's license and I had my passport and my passport was one week expired. So my passport went from four points of identity to zero. So then I take that to the post office to get a new passport. And the passport that was worth zero points was all that was needed to get a brand new passport, which I then took to the DMV and was now worth four points. Right. And that's the American system. You you don't even want to look at the kind of bureaucracy and ridiculous security theater that goes into getting an ADHAR ID. Okay. Okay. So let me jump in with a quick question here. So I hear everyone saying that there's no need for identity to be associated with these attestations, but where I'm getting stuck on this concept is how does someone who is receiving and valuing an attestation, so like the DMV, how do they know if there's no picture on it or anything like that? Like, I I understand you could get rid of all the other information, but the point of it is to identify you. And once you're identified, then that information can be applied or not. Well, I mean, that I think that that's the on its face, at least assumption. The purpose of an attestation is to de-risk an engagement. And there are basically two types of risks, risks that are financial in nature and risks that are of a kind. So, for instance, like if you're ordering a pizza, I just need to know that when I show up with 20 pies, someone's going to pay for it when I show up. One way to de-risk knowing that that's going to happen is knowing that the person who lives there is the one who orders it. But I don't really care to know that the person who lives there orders it. What I care about is when I show up, someone's going to pay for it. Like That's one type of attestation. Order this pizza, send it here, and the entity that ordered the pizza will make sure that it gets paid for when they arrive, irrespective of who that person is. The other type of identity risk is I have to know that this is the person I'm dealing with. Like, Is this person a terrorist? Or 
this person is voting and only these people can vote. Is this person one of those people? And that's not a financial risk. That's the, of a kind. Like it has to be that person. Mm-hmm. And it's in understanding what type of attestation you're dealing with. Is it a counterparty risk exposure or is it like you actually need to have that person, which is where a lot of people conflate the distinction between an identity attestation and a credential attestation. Okay, but given that, in the DMV example where I'm going in and applying for a driver's license or a renewal of a driver's license or something like that, and if my attestation only has the information that says that I have the relevant information but contains no identifying information whatsoever, then how does the DMV know that when I hand it to them and they check it that I'm not handing them someone else's attestation? They don't need to know who you are. They need to know essentially that the person they tested is the person they give the attestation to. And the cop needs to know that the attestation they they received is for a valid driver's license. If you decide to give your license to drive to someone else, give them control over that attestation to then transfer all of the risk to you while they drive around, is that really a risk we need to protect against? Well, I mean, it's one that already happens. It's one that already happens. But, you know, is that the worst risk? How I would see this is that you probably would want a picture or a pairwise DID tied to that attestation such that you're not disclosing, you know, when when a cop pulls me over, either the attestation says you can drive, check, and you see see just the picture. There's no other information on it. So they know, oh, this roughly looks like it's supposed to look like. Or it contains a pairwise DID. It's signed to one so that you can prove and the DMV can prove, yeah, this is the DID that was presented for this batch of information. And whoever's in possession of this DID, which is a lower, lower bar, is the one who can present it. And when mm. I say pairwise, I mean, it's just the relationship with the DMV. Like if I use another DID as, say, my pseudonymous DID for Twitter, none of those two things are correlated. They can't say, well, you know, he, he showed his ID here and look, I, now I know it's this, this person on Twitter. Okay, so I go to the DMV and I present this attestation and then I actually sign with the key that was used to claim that attestation, which demonstrates I have the key in a very Bitcoin-like way. And that sort of proves it. It's still not perfect because, again, the same they're... key that signed your photo and, right. and both the DMV and the cop can see your face, which, which, again, you know, there are risks there because if you use various biometrics like photos, which are subject to facial recognition or fingerprints or other things like that, then you can very easily start creating a correlation and trail between them, which is why you need to change your DID pairs all the mm-hmm. time. So it seems like there are certain types of, of uh, attestation that do require identification, and there are other types that really don't. We're talking about this kind of in the context of real life. How does that change when you're online? Does it change? The stuff follows you online. The bar example is actually really good because you hit these websites and it says, hey, you know, prove you're 21. You just got to punch in, you know, I was born in 1901, which is now I'm, I guess I'm like the oldest person on the planet um, <laughs> and all sorts of fun stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's again, security theater to Andres' point. But that might be a place where you want to provide a, a minimal disclosure proof and never be bothered by that again. Just say, look, I'm willing to stipulate I'm 21 on alcohol sites, sites that you know have proof that they're actually vendors of alcohol. My, my, um, favorite, uh, my favorite challenge uh, response for proof of age was uh, Leisure Suit Larry. And I think the 90s, <laughs> the video game, wouldn't ask you your age. It would ask you who was the president in the 50s and like a bunch of esoteric poli-sci questions. <laughs> you basically had to be in your 20s to understand. Yeah, we could do that with internet memes very effectively today. <laughs> We've been talking about what I 
term core identity. So core identity, meaning like all the things, if you ask the average voter, hey, what's your identity? Some people might say their Facebook profile, but a lot of people say, oh, that's my, you know, my ID card here. And those things actually in the, in the, the scheme of things are really like 5% of identity interactions, right? How we look at identity and with this system, how we're looking at it is identity is really everything you do say, you know, exchange between people. Everything's got a, an imprint of identity. Like your identity is essentially this book of your life, of all the stuff you've done, the pictures you've taken, places you've been. So all that stuff today is sharded out across all of these centralized authorities and companies and everything. And you're sort of leaving this trail of who you are. And what we believe is, is that proofs shouldn't just be yours and and uh, permission shouldn't be yours to those proofs, but also the data that comprises apps and other things. So that's where that personal data store really comes in, is having an encrypted data store that is tied to these identifiers that you own allows you to start engaging in different apps and services that are kind of just between you and the app and service. And they start storing their data with you, not the other way around. So for us, this is just as much an application layer as it is a core identity proofing layer. So when we when we talk about rights and the things that people should have versus things that companies or uh, governments should have access to, I'm still very much um, in shell shock from the Prism disclosures back in 08 mm-hmm. and 09, mm-hmm. and I feel like you know everyone forgot about it just because the the right politician or the wrong politician was in office to still freak about it today. Is this the type of thing that would make Microsoft, if this were fully adopted by everyone who's a Windows user? Would this be like a higher level of prism resistance to Microsoft? Can you, Should, can you remind us, Jonathan, what exactly prism was and how it related to things like hex keyscore and other revelations by Edward Snowden? Oh, boy. Uh, Andreas, you could do a far better job at this than I. But functionally, Edward Snowden whistle blew on the fact that the U.S. government was using as a proxy private companies that it compelled to disclose user data on. And then was collecting this data and using it for government purposes. So in the same way that we have the Five Eyes Alliance, which is an alliance between five uh, countries that can't spy on their own people, but spy on each other's people for other people, the U.S. government constructed this framework whereby it compelled private companies to disclose data that they had and then use that to then not need to get a, a search warrant on every American. So here's the interesting thing is the. There's a couple of different programs, and they overlap in a number of different ways. Prism is the one that collects internet data. So this was about the famous room in, in the AT&T building on Folsom Street in San Francisco and various other rooms around the country where they basically tap into global fiber backlinks and pull the entire internet. So anything that's unencrypted, as well as internet companies like Google, Facebook, etc., through 702, Section 702, FISA Amendment warrants. Right, by, by compelling them. It's not even a willed action. It's a, you are compelled to do this, and you can't even talk to your lawyer about this or bring it before a court, because that, too, is a secret. You're worried about PRISM. I'm more worried about x score, which is far more relevant to the conversation we're having now. And let's talk about the correlation between that. X-Keyscore is a database of global identifiers. This includes IMEIs, which are international mobile equipment identifiers. So basically a unique number that corresponds to your phone, which is recorded by cell phone towers and captured. MAC addresses, IP addresses, and account IDs on various things, telephone numbers and things like that. And what that 
the two programs together allow you to take internet data that's been captured through Prism and index it and search for it using identifiers stored in X key score. That's where it gets really, really interesting. And that's really the identifier information that's being captured. And the fascinating thing about this is that when this disclosure came about, all of the companies that were forced to comply with this you know, decried how bad it was, how sorry they were, and how much they wanted to change for it. And it's actually quite wonderful, but I didn't expect of the list of companies involved that it would be Microsoft that would be making the most material, you know, <laughs> engagement with the core of the internet to try to solve that problem. Because of policy we have Microsoft, I, I certainly don't want to speak for them here on the podcast, but my personal belief, you know, I don't believe in third-party doctrine. I think it's a gross overstep of, of the Constitution, I, I think the framers would be horrified to learn so, Just to clarify there again, let's do some clarification of terms. Third-party doctrine is a legal doctrine that says that when you store your data with third parties, such as these internet service providers, you have a reduced expectation of privacy, and that data is no longer protected by the strict constraints of the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable search and seizure. And the scary thing is what constitutes a third party. So is your computer a third party? Is your filing cabinet a third party? So what I think it just came out that Facebook was selling advertiser data to your private instant messages on Facebook. Because that is considered a third-party disclosure now. Absolutely. And, and those are the sorts of things. I think people should absolutely be secure in their, in their digital effects uh, the same way they would anywhere else, just like we have free speech on Twitter, and it's not just the words out of our, uh, you know, the vocalizations of our, our mouths. So, so this system does give people a sense of security and privacy that I think that they haven't had for a while. And I think that's a, a great thing. And we should embrace it. And I hope that, you know, in America anyway, that patriotic folks here do embrace it because that's our rights. And, and, and one of the things that we sort of glossed over, but I do want to emphasize is how fantastic it's been to see sort of from a distance, you work with the, the W3C. Adam's talked about them uh, multiple times on the podcast, but the W3C is the World Wide Web Consortia. They're a non-political standards org that sets things like what HTML5 should look like, what all these different functions that browsers use would look like and could look like. And they're one of the most powerfully impactful non-political global organizations out there. So to see this like key infrastructure stuff that you're working on at the W3C in an open source manner get adopted, it means like this isn't that far away from reality. To underscore that point, 90% of the code that we have written to date for this project is all already open source under the Decentralized Identity Foundation's repos. Um, it's licensed under Apache 2. It's covered under the same IPR as W3C. So people are going to be free to use these systems and these protocols. Um, the layer two protocol I mentioned, it's actually not chain specific. So it's kind of like if you wrote an adapter for Ethereum or something or some other chain as a community you're interested in, um, you could make that same protocol work there as well. And it's one of the most like open source libertarian things that I've ever felt or seen, the W3C, <laughs> which it's, it's, a, it's a standards org and you could shoot yourself with all the nonsense that happens in standards org. But when the W3C says, hey, guys, we think we're going to use this, they're not telling any governments to use it. They're not telling any companies to use it. They're not telling anyone else in the world to use it. They're just saying us, these four companies that happen to represent 99.999% of the browser market, this is how we're going to interpret packets communicated across the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. 
So the identity solution you're working on, once approved and implemented, it's going to be like a switch where it's just every browser in the world can start using it and engaging with it, which is going to be amazing. I, I certainly hope so. But, you know, I, I also I tend to be pragmatic and realistic. I mean, the reason I went to Microsoft to do this is because I, th I thought it had a fighting chance, right? Like you, there's a lot of other great groups out there that are doing good work in the space and even work with us, but you're going toe to toe with Titans, you know? Well, even, even stands within the W3C, like what happened to P3P? <laughs> a, a right? lot of it's, things, it's, yep. it's a great example of a standard that, that promised a lot and even got standardized and ratified, but never went anywhere in terms of implementation. I think the beautiful thing about this particular one is that most of the core identity interactions and permissioning, all that stuff is going to happen through these wallet apps anyway, these secure wallet apps. And so even if, like, say some companies just refuse to adopt it, maybe it was antithetical to their business model or whatever, there's still a lot of meaningful things you can do with just the wallet app infrastructure outside of the browser. So even if another browser company didn't add it to their stack, it would still have a ton of value. And that's one reason we think, and obviously it's decentralized, it'll run independently of them giving it the uh, nod, which is, you know, the ultimate power. So if, if we had some kind of decentralized organization that could implement this, this, this is where open public blockchains really can start influencing the future of applications, right? Once you have a wallet and you're protecting keys because of the security of your money, now you can use those keys to do other things. Once that wallet is interacting with your browser with various protocols and you need to have uh, in-browser capabilities like we see with things like MetaMask and Jax and other wallets like that, now you've got a relationship between the web and your wallet. Now you can do more interesting things. So the next step is being able to tie identity or decentralized identity to that and IPFS and other protocols and start building some of this vision of the decentralized web. I mean, that's our goal in the end. It's, it's, it's beyond core identity. It's beyond just what people would typically think of that thin layer of authority-based identity well into the, the realm of empowering decentralized applications, more personal encrypted communications. All of that stuff is stuff that we ride on top of this. You know, I mean, I know you were saying that's why you, you wanted to go to Microsoft as Titan, but I always try to remind the people at Ethereum that, you know, Linux is awesome, but Linux really became Linux when IBM, the Titan, threw themselves behind it. So, you know, to see Mike, uh, Microsoft throw itself behind open source in the blockchain space in the areas, I think, where the fights need to be had, I think really is one of those like unsung hero sort of things that could really turn the tide in the same way that, you know, IBM really did a lot to make Linux succeed. I know we're kind of coming to the end here, but this is my hypothesis of a possible future that could happen. You know how there's all these folks in the Bitcoin community or even the cryptocurrency community like Peter Schiff and Nero Rubini, and they always make this terrible argument about intrinsic value, which I think all of us agree doesn't exist. Value is sort of this manifestation of the human mind more than anything. And the intrinsic utility of some of these things, like a piece of paper, a $100 bill is written on, is the ability to you know, scribble a message on it or do cool origami figures. Those are the utilities of those instruments. I would argue that the utility of public blockchains, even before they were known as money and had that inference by humans, was PKI. And so I'm curious what would happen when these systems land and if they get, reach scale and adoption. It kind of sucks the wind out of those narratives, in my estimation, because now you can turn around to them and say, hey, you know what? You may think it's only you know, a subjective asset, but 
it's actually doing this, this really mechanical utility function right now that is being used for something that is outside of this conversation of money. And I, I'm curious what your take on that might be, or if you think that might be how it goes down. Well, I think it's a cycle, which is that the utility creates value, but the value is the security mechanism. So first you have utility, right? You have something useful. Then that makes the assets underlying the system valuable. And then the assets, because they're valuable, secure the system. In the case of Bitcoin, they secure the system through proof of work and the incentives of the consensus algorithm. But also in the broader sense, the existence of value also makes every user who participates in the system for the first time ever care about key management. PKI on itself failed to launch again and again and again because there was no alignment incentives between protecting the keys and something important. And you can't bootstrap it by saying, let's build something important like identity or attestation or trust on top of these keys when you don't have any reason for securing them. But once you have money behind them, the money makes the keys worth securing, which then makes those keys useful for other applications, which then make the money more valuable. And you have this feedback loop. I think it's it's really a feedback loop. So Intrinsic utility creates value, value creates security, security creates more intrinsic utility, and you just keep going in a circle. So Daniel, we're going to put some links in the show notes to the things you mentioned in the repos. Um, if someone's interested in participating in this or in kind of helping out on the effort, where do they go? Who do they talk to? What are you looking for? Great. Yeah. So we're active in the Decentralized Identity Foundation. The URL is identity.foundation, and the GitHub repo is decentralized-identity. All the code you'll find there is Apache 2. It's under the W3C's IPR and you know all the contents Creative Commons 4. So feel free to get involved. Also, the W3C has a group. The current group is the Credentials Community Group. You can get involved with that as well. Great folks like Kim Duffy from Learning Machine and Christopher Allen, uh, formerly of Blockstream, are running that group. Those are the two groups right now that we're participating in. We'd love if more people came and got involved, either from a policy, advocacy, or code point of view. Now, Daniel, you know, just to kind of go back a little bit, the secondhand attestation, you know, your insurance company, for example, we haven't really explicitly talked about it, but this feels kind of like maybe how the web of trust concept that, as Andrea said, has kind of been tried and failed a bunch of times. Maybe it finally goes mainstream. Is that kind of the goal of this project or, or is that where you think you're going or are you basing this off of some other way of thinking than the web of trust? So we definitely believe that accrued attestations or a bundle of attestations could prove some composite proof, right? Like you could say, hey, you know, I need you to give me this proof, this proof, and this proof of these types, and then I will believe and give you a bank account. So those proofs could be numerous and differential and, and signed by a ton of different issuers. We think that there may be a commercial play. There may be ability to say, hey, you know what? I can analyze these proofs and I, I know kind of who these institutions are. So I'll help you make a scoring to say like, oh, well, yeah, they, this is a reputable agency or they did come from Dun & Bradstreet or whatever the relationship context is, you could kind of set parameters to say, this is what I'll accept as a relying party. So we do think that the trust, the web of trust concept is in there and that it probably will play a part. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thanks to Daniel Buckner, Andreas Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine for appearing on today's show. This episode was edited by Dave and Adam and featured music by Jared Rubens, Gertie Beats, John Barrett, Lyd Shaw, and more. 
You may think that this is the credits, but keep listening for a surprise for listeners both new and old. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Thanks for joining us today, and with these formalities out of the way, I'll hand you off to my good friend, Lid Shaw. Enjoy the show. Psst. Hey, you. How'd you like a VIP pass to the super-secret Bitcoins and Gravy after show? Yeah? Well, follow me. We're taking you live now to the historic Woodland Street Theater in beautiful East Nashville, Tennessee, where Reverend Johnny's big band Down Home Country Jam is set to debut their new single, Ode to Satoshi. Hit it, Johnny. Thank you very kindly, friends. I'd like to dedicate this song to the great American freedom fighter and songwriter, Mr. Pete Seeger. May you rest in peace. I would also like to dedicate this song to Andreas Antonopoulos for his words of wisdom and hope for us all. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh, Lord, pass me some more Oh, Lord, before I have to go. Oh, Lord, pass me some more. Oh, Lord, before I have to go. <laughs> Thank you, East Nashville. Y'all be good to each other out there, you hear?